Good morning. Good to see you here on this 4th of July weekend. I'm glad you made it. Hope you guys had an enjoyable day yesterday with the food and the fireworks and celebration. It's funny as you get older and you remember 4th of July as a kid and then I remember it while having kids and now my kids are gone and I don't know what to do. I know what I'd like to do, but it can't buy those fireworks here. It's illegal, so. <clears throat> anyway, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. We are going to be concluding Sunday morning in the book of Acts. Next week, what we're going to be doing is kind of taking stock and reviewing again our vision as a church, a Genesis. Uh, I want to share with you guys what our goal is, why we are here, and what we're praying and would like to see take place with the ministry here at Genesis. And then we're going to be going into the book of Romans. But uh, that'll be next week. We're going to be talking about just our vision for the church, and then also uh, we'll go into the book of Romans after that. But today we're going to finish in Acts chapter 28. The book of Acts has spanned over 30-year period, and the last 30, probably 34 years has been focused on the person of Paul. We, we saw his conversion, where he came to faith. We, we knew who he was as we saw a glimpse of him persecuting the church before he became a follower of Jesus, there approving Stephen, the first martyr's death. And then we saw his conversion on the road to Damascus where the Lord miraculously appeared to him, caught his attention, revealed himself to him, and then we saw the change and have been following along with him on this journey as he's tried to reach out to his people, the Jews, and then the Lord opening the door for him to go to the Gentiles. And finally, we saw that God had told him that I want you to go to Rome, and it's something that he indeed wanted to do, and that's where he is. He's in Rome now. He got to Rome all expenses paid through the prison system, but here he is in Rome, and he... he we find in verse 16 that when he got to Rome, he was allowed to live by himself with the soldier to guard him. And look with me at the last two verses, verses 30 and 31, as we get this little capsule of who Paul was by Luke, as he tells us these things about this man. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in this house, in his own rented house, and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at these two verses and, and talk about what it describes about this man, Paul. The first thing it says is that this time that he stayed there, he stayed in his own rented house. His own rented house. This wasn't something that the Roman government provided for him. He was allowed some freedom, although he had a guard with him all the time. But it was his bill paying for this. 
And you know, it's really important and just a practical thing, really, when we see a person taking care of their needs when possible. And we see that with Paul. He told those in Thessalonica, Thessalonians 3, verses 7 and 10, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And so Paul made it a practice not to be a burden to people. You know, it's a difficult thing to try and share your faith with someone if you're being a burden to them. It's like, okay, great, thanks for telling me that, but you know, you're a pain in the neck. And it kind of just, you know, deflates what you're trying to say when you're causing difficulty. And so Paul recognizes this, and he says, when we were with you, we weren't a burden to you. We flipped our own bill. We took care of ourselves so that it wouldn't devalue what it is we're trying to say. And we need to be aware of this, and it's just a practical thing, that if you want to have an impact, then you need to not be a burden. And this includes financially, and it includes other ways as well. Some people are an emotional burden. Every time you see them, and it's an emotional burden, you you just dump your garbage out every time. Now, it's one thing to ask and desire help, and it's another thing to just throw out the garbage every time you see someone. Give out the poor me's, you know, you throw a pity party every time you go, you know what happened to me today? You know, it's the whole Eeyore syndrome. Nice day. Well, I guess so. Air conditioner's broken. Kids giving me trouble. You know, and it's like, oh, boy, I'm glad you're here. You know, they... By the way, do you want to believe in Jesus? <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. Thank you. Anyway, and it just, it's counterproductive to what's trying to take place. And we don't realize that we can be a burden to people. And so... We see that Paul, spending this two years, he flipped his own bill. It also says in Acts chapter 18, verses 2 through 4, Paul went to see them, Priscilla and Aquila, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he responded, reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so we see that Paul had a job. The great apostle, the one who penned most of our New Testament, made tents. Why? Because he didn't want to be a burden. And then it says, in his spare time, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, we've talked about through the book of Acts how much prejudice there was between these two groups of people, the Jews and the Greeks, the Greeks and the Romans, having control over the Jews, the Jews rebelling against that oppressive government and seeing them as unfit, unclean. A lot of the Jews believed that the Gentiles were only good for being fuel for hell. That was their 
idea of it. So you can see there's a big gap here. And Paul was reasoning with both the Jews and the Greeks. What takes us to our next portion of that is that not only did he rent his own house, but he welcomed all who came to see him. He welcomed everybody. I wonder how that plays in our life. Or do we have selective welcoming? We welcome those who are pleasing to us. Those who, you know, are comfortable in our situation. Paul didn't do that. He, he reasoned with him. He cared both for the Jews and the Gentiles. In Acts 17, 17, we saw that he reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. It didn't matter to him. Every day he was either in the synagogue, in the marketplace, talking about this. And there's this idea of invitation, welcoming people into this place. And I wonder, how are we at that? I remember sitting in a ministry class. It was a pastor teaching a bunch of people who were involved with ministry, and he was basically raising these people up to be involved with ministry. And I remember him saying, you know, I, there are two types of people. I have my friends, and then I have those who are ministry. And you can't confuse the two. You're going to have your friends, and then you're going to have the people that are ministry. And I remember thinking when he said that, I thought, which one am I? <laughs> you know, am I your friend or am I a ministry? You know, Something struck me about that. That just didn't seem right. It didn't seem welcoming. It, it didn't seem like Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 9, verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. In fact, later on in chapter 11, verse 19, it says he was the friend of sinners. Jesus seemed to only have one category. It was friends. It was welcoming. And, and I think this is important because if we are not welcoming, then we're not like Jesus. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the DNA of God being love, being peacemakers. And so Paul is welcoming everybody. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, so if you want to be a leader someone who is in a leadership role in the church, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. He has to have hospitality. 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 Why is that a requirement to be a leader? Because if you don't welcome people, then you're making them feel unwelcome. And if you're going to be in a position that 
needs to be representative of God and of Jesus, then people need to feel welcome. And I totally reject that pastor's thinking of there's two groups of people, friends and ministry. There's only one group, and they're welcome. Because otherwise you're going to be wondering, who am I? Am I your friend or am I ministry? How do you know? And there's this guard, you know. Well, we're welcome. And it's important for us to recognize that this hospitality is a requirement of anyone who's going to be in a leadership role. You have to be invitation to people to come to you. And Paul, two years there, he's flipping his own bill, paying for the place, and he's welcoming all. Anyone who wanted to come, Jew or Greek. And we saw previously when he went there, some of the brethren were there, and then he invited the Jews to come and dialogued with them till, till evening time. He was welcoming them. You guys, you always have a place here. You can come to me anytime you want. Are we that way? Do we give that impression? Or are we elusive? Are we too busy? One of the things that is great about being involved with ministry is being available for people. And I'm, I'm thankful that even though I work and do dog training, I am getting a salary here from the church that makes it possible for me to meet with you when things arise, to go and visit at the hospital, to sit down over a cup of coffee and talk. I, I want to be available, and I want it to be something that's welcome. But that goes for you, too. It's not just me. Are you an open invitation to people that says, hey, you're welcome. Come here. Or do you put the guards up? Well, you're welcome, but I don't No, no go ahead. You go to his house because you're not welcome at this house. And we need to be careful because we don't want to give that impression that someone is less than a friend, less than welcome. And so Paul paid for his own place, welcomed everyone who came to him, and then we see that he boldly, without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Boldly. Now, without hindrance means that he wasn't obstructed by the Roman guard that was there with him. In fact, we see that in Philippians that the saints send their greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Those who belong to Caesar's household were probably the ones that Paul was chained to who came to faith because they were welcome too, even though they were guarding him. And so he shared with them as well. But boldness, boldness is something that's elusive because we all want to be bold in the right ways but we all feel a little bit or most of us feel a little bit well i'm not really bold and think about what causes boldness what is it that allows a person to be bold one of the definitions of boldness it might say confidence but it also is freedom Boldness gives you freedom. When you're confident about something, then you have freedom to do it. 
I remember I went to a baseball game when I was <clears throat> working for the lumber company that I worked at. They had some great seats behind home plate at the uh, Angel Stadium. Do they still have those seats, Mark? No, bummer. They're good seats. Uh, it was right behind home plate. And I remember I took one of my clients who was a baseball fan. It's always great when you take someone who's actually a fan, you know, and they want to see the game. Because I take some clients and they just wanted to go eat. And I'm like, but these are great seats. We got to see the game. Well, I'm kind of tired now. It's the ninth inning. It's tied. What are you talking about? You know, but you're the client. Okay. Um, anyway, I went with this one client and he was a real avid fan. And I remember Chuck Finley was pitching and Jose Canseco, I think he was playing for the Diamondbacks or something, or no, the, the Devil Rays. And he came up to bat, and Chuck Finley was there, and, and Jose Canseco comes, and he, he comes right up against the plate. He's crowding the plate. I mean, he's standing just about on top of the plate. And Chuck Finley winds up, pitches a fastball 90-plus miles an hour, and it misses his kneecaps by inches. I mean, just boom. Like that. And me and this guy who I'm with, we go, oh, we just both get like the chill. Because, I mean, you're right there and you can see it and it just misses his kneecaps. And we're thinking, oh, my gosh. And the next time Jose Canseco came back, he was a little further from the play. <laughs> and, and you see, what Chuck Finley did was had confidence that I could throw this ball 90 miles an hour and get it right there. If I could throw a ball 90 miles an hour, we're all in trouble. Because who knows where it's going to go. If you're up there, you know, you might, okay, buddy, here it comes. But with confidence comes the ability to do something. You have the freedom to do it. There's not a hesitation. Paul had boldness because he had the freedom and confidence to talk about Jesus. Now, what helps us to become bold? What helps us to get confident? Knowledge. The more you know about something, the more you're able to talk about it. It's true with sales. If you know your product, then you can talk about it and you can sell it. If you know a subject, you're quick to talk about it. You ever have a story where a bunch of people are talking, gathered around a campfire or whatever, and you bring up something, oh, you know, I talk about fishing. Oh, if there's a fisher person, you know, fisher person, you could tell. I'm not one of them. If there's a fisherman there, a fisher person there, he'll tell his stories, you know. I'm a fisher person too. Yeah, I gave myself away there. Well, they'll start telling fishing stories about, you know, oh yeah, well I use this kind of bait and I use this kind of tackle. And I'm like, tackle, isn't that football? You know, and I, it's like, they're able to talk about that because they have the knowledge of it. I remember when a Jehovah's Witness came up to me and he started talking to me and he presented, well, Jesus is the firstborn of creation. It says so there in Scripture. And I was like, oh, no, what does that mean? Oh, my gosh. And then I started studying. And then I started finding out that firstborn meant preeminence. Remember Jacob and Esau. Well, Esau was born first, but it says later on that Jacob, this is my firstborn. How did that happen? Well, he was preeminent. He was the chosen one. That's what it means. And so you get this knowledge, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, come on, ring the doorbell. I'm ready. <laughs> Why? I have confidence. I have boldness because I have knowledge about something. 
And whatever it is, that subject that you feel, oh, I don't know what to do. The Da Vinci Code. Remember when that was a big buzz? Everyone's like, oh, what's the Da Vinci? Who knows what it means? I don't know what it means. And then I, I did a study on it. And so I studied about it. I actually read the book. It's a long book. And I could have just saw the movie. But <laughs> I read the book and went through and studied it. And then, you know, when someone says, well, you know, why is it that John looks like a woman in the, you know, painting, in Da Vinci's painting? It's like, why do all the people look white when they're supposed to be Jewish in the painting? <laughs> when you get knowledge, you can then start to communicate in a way with confidence, with boldness, because you know. Paul was able to speak boldly because he knew the God he served. When you know about something, you can be bold. You have the freedom and confidence to talk. Now, it's great to study and educate yourself in apologetics, reasons for your faith. And years ago when I was studying under Walter Martin, one of the things he shared that always I took to heart was if you ever come across a question don't run away, but run into it, because in it you will find a gem and an answer. If you pursue those things that you have questions about, you'll find the answer, and it will help your faith. And it's been true. Everything. Now, there's still things I don't know, still things I don't understand, but when I look into them, I get more information, I get more knowledge about it, and I become more confident in that subject. It's great. I've got this young man who sends me questions on MySpace. I don't MySpace anymore. I have my Facebook now. Um, <laughs> that sounded weird. Anyway, he sends me these questions, and, and he's probably 14 years old, but he, I, I love it because he says, you know, I read this in the Bible, and what about this? I had a friend who said this, and he's asking me questions, and I love it because I get to write back to him because I had those questions. I asked that one time. And so when he asks me about these things, about Jesus and about, you know, the sun going dark after the crucifixion, you know, do we have any evidence that that really happened? And sure enough, we do. We have someone who wrote about that and talked about that at that time that's recorded historically. And so you ask the question, you get the answer, you get more knowledge, you understand this, and now you have confidence in it. You have a boldness to be able to share. So I encourage you, when things come up, don't run away. You know, the Da Vinci Code. I forget what channel it is, the National Geographic Channel, or one of these channels has all these programs about Jesus, the real Jesus, the hidden Jesus, you know, the other Jesus. You know, there was one, the Satan's Bible. It's like, oh, Satan's Bible, what's that? And, you know, it's stupid. <laughs> well, how do you know? Because you look into it and you find out that there's one manuscript written hundreds of years, decades after the fact, with no verification, and you're going to put stock in it? I think I'll write one. be the same thing. What's the matter if it's... 
300 plus years after or if it's a thousand years. If he wasn't there, how does he know? He's just making it up as he goes along. I could do that. You see, and all it takes is a little knowledge to be able to confront these things and say, that's stupid. And I don't need a PhD behind my name to know stupidity. You're able to then have confidence. And you know, the biggest thing is, do you know God? Is he at work in your life? Because even if I don't have all the answers, I have the relationship. I know who he is enough to be able to present him to other people because I talk to him. Because I pray and he answers my prayer. Because I see him at work in my life, changing me and working in my circumstances. He's not imaginary. He's real. And because he's real, there's evidence of him in my life, just like there was Paul. I've been touched and healed by him. I've seen God miraculously provide for me and you're going to tell me he doesn't exist? Go for it. I know different. I know different because I know him. Do you know him? Do you have that relationship with him? Is he at work within you, developing those things within you so that he is manifest within you, that you can see his work in your life. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Verse 5. Jesus is giving a story here. And he says in verse 5, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up, and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness or persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Because of this man's boldness, I can go and I can keep asking him. He's a friend. I know I can bug him. It doesn't say that, but it implies that. I know I can be persistent with him. I can keep going. I can keep knocking. I can keep knocking. And because of that persistence, he will give him. Which is really the next thing we see in Paul is persistence. Boy, if there's anything that marks this man, it's a not-give-up attitude. The guy has been beaten, left for dead a handful of times, shipwrecked three times, imprisoned both by his own countrymen, the Jews, the Gentiles, been a political prisoner, left abandoned in prison, remember, when he's in Caesarea for two years, 
because no one wanted to deal with him. They wanted to get a bribe from him, wouldn't release him. And here he is still boldly talking about the kingdom of God. He'd never stopped. He never stopped. And, and being persistent is a necessity if you're going to live this life and follow after the Lord. It's a must. Because the time is going to come when you want to give up. The time is going to come when you're going to say, man, this is hard. Why, why is it so difficult? And you can't. You need to fight through it. And it's not that way just in your faith. It's that way in life. As a husband, a wife, father, mother, any relationship, you have to stick with it because no one's perfect except you. And so you have to put up with somebody. I think it's funny then every argument I've ever had with my wife, I've always thought I was right at some point, you know. <laughs> it always starts off, yeah, I'm right, I'm right. And then you find out, you know, that's just not true. You're, you're wrong. And it, I was once. But anyway, <laughs> there is the recognition that you know, you have to put up with people and you have to continue. You can't say, that's it, you burned my toast, you're done. You can't give up. You set the tree on fire, you're no longer my son. <laughs> I'll tell you that story later. <laughs> Persistence, James chapter 1, verse 12. It says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Perseverance and love go hand in hand. If you love, you will persevere. And this ties back into that knowing and having the relationship. Because you're going to go through the difficulties, you need to persevere. And if you do persevere, there is a crown of life waiting for you. It's waiting for those who love him. It's interesting because as James wrote this, and he talks about perseverance and he talks about love, Paul wrote the same things, or very similar things, in 2 Timothy. And this is his last words. This is Paul before he's about to be beheaded, he tells Timothy, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. We saw the crown of life that James talks about. Paul's speaking about the same thing. This crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. James tells us all who love him. Paul says all who long for his appearing. You know, it's the same thing. All who love God and want to see him. There's a crown waiting for you. Through the difficulties, through the hardships, there's a crown waiting for you. And if you have that recognition, then 
you can go through the difficulties. Then you can make it past those hardships. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4.8, Paul says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but we are not destroyed. We persevere. And it's important that we recognize the importance of these things and have them in our own lives. That we're not a burden to people. That we don't overwhelm them make them have to deal with us. That we do what we can so that we alleviate that burden from other people. That we're welcoming, that we're open to people, that they can feel invitation, an invitation from us anytime. That we don't start placing these priorities of who's welcome and who's not. That we have boldness in our faith be able to talk to people because we know God, because we have a relationship with him, because we are growing in that relationship with him, and that we persevere, that we hang on through the difficult times. We get to enjoy the good times, but we're not yet home. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, God many times affords us moments of rest, refreshment on this journey, but they never last because he doesn't want us to mistake this place with home. And so you're going to go through difficulties, you'll get refreshed, but you're not home yet. Keep your eyes looking up on the things of heaven. Jesus said to put our treasure there where moth doesn't eat and, and rust doesn't destroy. Have the right priority. And I pray that like Paul, we might be able to take these things that were a part of his life, that we saw in his life throughout this book and appropriate them to us. After Paul, um, the book just ends right there and and. Like I said, Thursday night, it's like kind of a jip. It's like, well, what happened? What happened next? We know later on that Paul was released. He went before Nero, and there was no evidence to hold him, so they released him. As they released him, he went up into Spain, and then later on up towards where Bosnia is. And then as the church began to grow, the Roman government became concerned, and so they started persecuting the church and then they brought Paul back, threw him in a dungeon, and later beheaded him, which is where this last epistle to Timothy was written. That was this man's life. It ended giving his life for faith in the Lord. And you know, as you see Luke writing about him, you don't get this impression that he was a miserable person. You get this impression that this guy was loving, was confident, and he did endure till the end. As he told Timothy, I've run the race. I have fought the fight. I'm ready to be poured out. May we take this man as an example and follow in his footsteps, even as he said, follow me even as I follow Christ, that we could say those things as well. 
And might we make a difference in the lives of the people around us, just as Paul did. Might we be that good of a representative, even as he was. Let's pray. Father, as we are concluding this book, and this biography, at least the last portion of your servant, Paul. Lord, I'm just humbled by this man. And he's always been an example to me of what I could be if I would surrender fully to you. He's always been that person that I could look to and say, he was able to do this and he's a man like me. God, what could we do if we would live as he did? What difference could we make in our families, in our communities, in our places of work or school if we had that love that he had for you? God, if we wouldn't be a burden, if we would be open and welcoming to anybody, if we would have that boldness, that confidence, that freedom and ability to talk, Lord, if we would not give up, what kind of impact could we make? God, I, I want to make that impact. I think most of us do. And so we come to this place here this morning where we, we see what we want to be, but we know what we are, and this gap seems so big in between but, Lord, that's, that's where you fill in the gap. That's where you are our strength and weakness. And that's where even though we are beaten down, we're not broken. And even as Paul wrote in Philippians, you've begun a work in us and you are going to complete it. Lord, might we look for that completion. Might we not settle, become stagnant, become satisfied with where we're at. May we want more. May we long for your appearing. May we love you. May that motivate us to get to know you more. Lord, I know the times that you've spoken into my life, it, it, it's changed me. The times that I, I've been able to, to feel so close to you, God, I, I, don't, I don't ever want to lose those times. I long for them, and I, I pray that they continue. And I, I pray that for all of us, God, that you would ruin us with your love change us forever. And I pray we would take all the things that we've gone through through this book and apply them to our lives and look forward to the things that you desire to do within us, Lord. Bless everyone here, Lord. May your spirit pour upon them and, and stir within them the things that you desire for each of them. And may we not be content until that's satisfied in us, Lord. We do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.